Well, let, let me ask the question. Do you feel that you are standing firm in the Lord today? I was just out in the hospitality room getting some hot water and I was talking to Olga and she asked me how I was doing. And I said, um, I, said I feel about 60%, but I really feel 100% in the Lord this morning. Um, and... Uh, and feel a joy, a joy in the Lord, a settled joy, a firm joy. How are you faring regarding the numerous difficulties that you're facing this morning or that those whom you love are facing? If you're listening on, on live stream, if you're in the hospital right now and you're listening, and just how are you faring amid the difficulties that you're experiencing right now today? Does standing firm in the Lord sound like spiritual pie-in-the-sky kind of thinking? I mean, perhaps you simply feel the coping um, just like everyone else tries to do in this world is, is, more, is just more long lines of what you're trying to do. I'm just trying to get through the day. I'm just trying to cope with the situation. The Apostle Paul's primary concern for this Philippian church and my concern for both myself and for you this morning is that we would learn how to truly stand firm in the Lord, solid, not shaking, not filled with fear, not hopeless. I mean, weak, sure. Doubting sometimes, absolutely. But but solid in the Lord. So I said I'm 100% in the Lord this morning. Well, certain times I don't feel that, but it's like I can feel it. I can know that I'm firm because my, as we'll see, my firmness, my steadfastness isn't in circumstances, but it's in the solid rock of King Jesus. The word therefore in our text um, this morning, right at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, you know, obviously, you all know that that means, you know, we look backwards. You know, because of what we just read, therefore, um, you know, it's unfortunate that it's at the end of uh, the beginning of a new chapter on the one hand, it's connected. But there is thought about it's not just connected backwards with like because you're citizens of the new heaven and new earth, because there's resurrected body for you coming, because there's all this hope, you can stand firm. It's not just that. It's also looking forward to the things that we're going to enter into in these next few weeks particular. Today I'm just going to be talking about three things, um, and then uh, Pastor Cale will preach, Lord willing, on the other uh, things next week. Um, want to uh, consider uh, not just specifically what we read last week, but the last few weeks where, you know, we'll stand firm in the Lord as we know Christ more. We'll stand firm in the Lord by counting all things as lost for the sake of knowing, uh, knowing Christ. Um, we'll walk in obedience and hope of heaven, see, keeping away from those who are enemies of the cross, waiting on Jesus as truly citizens of heaven and all that. But, but where we're going now where he says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joined crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. And there is a, there's, a, there's a sense that could stand firm thus from what you've heard, but stand firm thus in what I'm going to say. Stand firm in this way, in, the, in, in that way in the past and in these ways. So what I want to get to today is what it is that causes us to stand firm in this text. That the reality is that there are many things that threaten to upset us. There are many things in this life that threaten to shake us on this side of the coming resurrection as we live as citizens of God's kingdom now. And God's people really do encounter difficulty between the cross and the second coming of Christ. I mean, each of us feel it. Um, it might be sickness, it might be difficult, it might be relational difficulty, it might be things in this world. It could be all sorts of struggles. The Bible does not tell us that 
here is our best life. It certainly is a wonderful life. It certainly is a glorious life. It is a God-ordained life. It is a God-controlled life. It is a life, the life that we experience as citizens of heaven now. It is a life filled with freedom and deliverance and forgiveness and eternal hope. But all of that, all of that joy, all of that victorious living is met with difficulty, weights, and sickness, and anxieties, struggles. There's often instability when we find things that we wish we didn't have to encounter. Instability in our hearts, instability in our lives, instability in the church. We don't want that news from the doctor who tells us things we don't want to hear. We don't want to have to struggle through family issues and things that are hard and devastating and difficult to know how to navigate through. We don't want to deal with that anxiety. We don't want to deal with that struggle. We don't want to deal with that loneliness. We don't want to deal with this and this and this. And this is all sorts of those things. We are not immune from those kinds of struggles. So, so Paul's desire, Paul's earnest desire in this text is to make us strong, steady believers, to, to make us stable in the Christian life now as we face trials of various kinds while we wait for the Lord Jesus' imminent return. And he could return today. And he doesn't simply tell us in mid, amid our difficulties, like, hey, you need to grow up. You need, to, you need to buck up against that thing that's bothering you and just trust God. You need to do this. You need to do that. He, he, he first just kind of attacks them with love. I mean, listen to his words in verse 1, my brothers. And, and that includes it's the family, family of God, my, the, this church, my brothers and sisters, whom I love I mean, feel this. Feel, feel this. It's, it's easy to just kind of bypass it. Paul, Paul, Paul is communicating all these things because, man, because he has such great affection for them. I love you, he says. I long for you. I mean, those are, those are rich words. You are my joy. You bring, you bring me joy. He, even amid all the struggles that he's addressing, all the disunity that he's addressing, you're my joy. You're my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Uh, is this the way we talk about each other? You know, this is the way that the Paul is talking to the church in Philippi from a Roman jail cell. There's family. And he wants to encourage and exhort and correct and to remind, but he's doing so not as a disinterested guy from hundreds of miles away, just trying to correct them, trying to fix them, but as a brother, as a co-laborer, as a dear friend, he wanted to come alongside them and help them know, hey, like what you're going through is difficult. Here's, here's some ways to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm with the things we talked about already last week and the weeks before, but now today and what this text says, you can stand firm in knowing these things and growing in these areas. Now, the fact that Paul isn't just simply confrontive, he's not just using his authority, although he could use his authority, but he doesn't, he's not interested in saying, look, you guys need to do this. Do this and you need to… He just enters into their pain, enters into the struggle. He truly loves them. He feels their pain. He feels their struggle. He empathizes with them and cares for them and wants to enter into that. And so he is given the Philippians' ears. 
The Philippians, knows, the Philippians know that they are loved by him. Before there's all this, all this challenge or correction or counsel. Now we would be wise, just by way of a sub-point here, to follow Paul's example here. Before Paul brings any word of correction or challenge, Paul overwhelms them with the reality of his affection for them. Now here's a word for each of us as parents and as spouses, as family members, as fellow Christians. Do those whom we exhort only or primarily feel our correction or judgment, or do they know above all things our acceptance and our love and our longing for them and our sense of joy regarding them? And it's just a, maybe we could sit there for a long time, right, and talk about that. That's worth considering, but that's not the primary thing in the passage. I want to move on to some points here. So digging into the passage, considering what Paul says will cause them to stand firm or build stability in their Christian life. First thing is this, cultivating harmony in the church will build stability in the Christian life. Cultivating harmony in the church will build stability in the Christian life. Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And Paul wants them to cultivate harmony and unity in and among themselves, and he addresses it head on by bringing up an evidently rather public struggle that's going on in that church. So public, Paul, in a Roman prison, hundreds of miles away, knows about it. This is how much he loves them, not just simply it's such a big deal that he's heard about it hundreds of miles away, but he is, he's connected with them. He loves them, and he's heard what's going on, and he loves these ladies particularly. Paul sees them as highly valuable. They're not periphery kind of people in the church. They're not subpar. They're not, there's not like men who he's really interested in, and then there's women who he's partially interested in as far as the ministry goes. These are women who are hard workers in the church. They've served in gospel ministry alongside of Paul and Clement and other gospel workers. These women were extremely valuable to the church and extremely valuable to Paul. Now, you may recall that when Paul and his crew arrived in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, they went down to the river uh, to see what was going on, and they went down to the river to, because there was this group of women praying. They went down and they met uh, somebody named Lydia, who was the first convert in this church. And there were other women also, perhaps Yodia and Syntyche were two of them, we don't know. But women are key figures throughout the entire Bible, not only in Philippi. Throughout the Gospels, throughout the early church to this very day, women have been vital co-laborers with men in the church. And unfortunately, the vital ministry of women throughout the years has been undervalued, misrepresented, and simply not what we see in God's Word. Men and women are co-laborers in very real and dynamic gospel ministry as truly brothers and sisters who love each other sacrificially, equal in every way, gifted by the Spirit for the common good of the church. And Pastor Dan's going to be preaching on this specific topic in the months to come when we enter into our We Believe series. The We Believe series that talks about, you know, strangely enough, what we believe about uh, what, what, what our statement of faith is. And one of the things is how we think about men and women in the church. And Dan is excited to preach 
about that topic and it is a topic that needs to be preached about because there's so much misunderstanding about potentially what the church believes in different areas and what we believe and we want to make sure we're communicating clearly to you. But this, just simply, simply put, this statement I want to repeat because this statement is in our membership manual. This statement is what we truly believe just generally. We want to give you more information about it. Men and women are co-laborers in very real and dynamic gospel ministry as truly brothers and sisters who are called to the same commission, the Great Commission, strengthening one another, loving each other sacrificially, equal in every way, gifted by the Spirit for the common good of the church. And outside of being a pastor, co-laborers in every single way. So, just by way of a, um, an example, and, and I, I could speak specifically into um, the co-laborer that I have sitting on this front row and my wife. But I want, to, I want to speak of someone else in the congregation that I've specifically felt strengthened by in recent days, and it's, it's Paula Sanders. Someone who has been able to care for people, to come alongside, and you've, many of you have gone, and there's, there's I mean, it's, it's always dangerous to just pick one person, right? There's, 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 lots of, there's lots of people I could point to. But I just said this to Paula yesterday after a long email with her about something. And I just said, you know, I feel so helped as a pastor, as a brother in Christ, by the way that you are caring for this person or this person. Just that strengthening thing, and there's many of it. We are co-laborers in the gospel, men and women. So enough, enough of that, but like be looking forward to that message coming in the months to come. Probably be at the end of the summer, beginning of the fall. Paul's reminded the Philippians throughout this letter that they should be unified, thinking of the other person before themselves, walking humbly with one another. Uh, but somehow amid their conflict, these two, this Yodia and Syntyche, had misplaced the unity they once had. And it was a big enough deal that Paul heard about the relational dissension, again, from hundreds of miles away. It was an enormous issue, and we don't have any idea what the issue was. Was it a doctrinal issue? No idea. Was it a relational issue? No idea. What we know is they weren't agreeing. They were in disagreement. And it was strong enough that Paul saw fit to address it. As an example, not that there weren't any other disagreements going on, but that these two in particular who are strong, solid, gospel-oriented women who served sacrificially were in significant disagreement with one another. Some sort of disagreement that seemed to be creating disharmony, at least with one another, and most likely the church at large. The, the fact is there are dear sisters in Christ, Yodia and Syntyche, believers, co-laborers, ladies whose names are written in the book of life, which, which is a whole other study, but specifically it's a very book which Scripture tells us repeatedly holds the names of all who have been made righteous and are forgiven by God and are children of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Citizens of the same kingdom these two were. They, 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 they both waited eagerly for their Savior. They looked forward to the resurrection to come. And somehow amid all of that unity, they lost it because they were in disagreement with one another in some way. 
All in all, it doesn't really matter what the issue is. Disharmony has many fingers. The thing we need to see is what Paul does about the problem and how we can learn from what he says. And the first thing I want to point out simply is this, that Paul doesn't pick sides. He doesn't say, look, Yodia, you're being a jerk. And, and here's the thing, you're doing X, Y, Z, or Syntyche, look, stop doing whatever. He just kind of cuts through all that and gives them one specific thing to think about. Again, he doesn't command them as an apostle. He doesn't set them up with 12 weeks of counseling and homework to read books on conflict resolution, although that would be fine on the one hand. But as their brother in the Lord, the simplicity of what Paul does here is remarkable. And it's the deepest thing. As their brother in the Lord, and as one who loves them and values them so much, Paul simply entreats them, pleads with them, begs with them, both of them, simultaneously to do one thing. Now, what is the one thing? Agree in the Lord. And that's not complicated counseling, but it is counseling that is often missed by way of just doing a bunch of pragmatic things. Yodi and Syntyche, I don't got time to deal with, like, to, to work with all this kind of stuff. I'm in a Roman prison. I only have so much ink. Agree in the Lord. The deepest kind of counsel. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? To, to live in harmony in the Lord? He doesn't mean that he expects them to put their minds and their deeply held beliefs aside and just forget about them as if to just kind of get over it and move on. Just like to stop it and move on, he tells them to agree in the Lord. He's not telling them to just work things out over some difficult conversations, although that is certainly something that's going to need to happen along the way as well. Paul's basically saying this to them. He's saying, sisters, look, you're both Christians. You're both loved by Jesus who gave himself for you. You're both united, not only now in this local church, but for eternity. You are together. You're in the same family, together for eternity. You're both in the Lord, and as such, be willing to have your so-called rights trampled by the other. Be willing to suffer a little bit of injustice or a lot of injustice. Be willing to give in more than the other if you genuinely love each other and desire the best for each other and the welfare of the entire local church. Be, be quick to come to an agreement. Part of that agreement may be that you agree to disagree on whatever the stated thing is. Probably not something that needed to be corrected doctrinally like foundationally, like gospel, gospel issues at stake. It's probably not a sin, specific sin thing where like, where immorality has taken place and somebody's confronting us. Like there'd be church discipline and all that stuff attached to this comment. These two ladies are just disagreeing on something and it's causing some level of disagreement. So he says, look, Possibly agree to disagree, but do it in a way that doesn't create friction or prevent the two of you from tearing each other and the rest of the church apart. Above all else, he's saying, try to do it for the sake of the name of the reputation of Christ. Agree in the Lord for the reputation of Christ in Philippi. Don't let your disagreement bring reproach on the name of Christ or the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, if there's a lack of harmony and disunity and tension between people in a family or in a marriage or in a church, there is no way that that is a stable situation. It's not a stable life. It's not harmonious. It's not a firm environment for us. When each person lives, Paul Tripp speaks about this all the time, when, every, when, when single people, individual people uh, live for their own kingdom, there's going to be conflict between kingdoms. But you see, Yodia and Syntyche, and you and I, who are in Christ, we live in the same kingdom. 
I don't live for Steve's kingdom. If I do live for Steve's kingdom, oftentimes there's struggle. Joy lives for Joy's kingdom, there's struggle. Rick lives, Rick lives for Rick's kingdom, there's struggle. Ben, each one of us, but we live in the same kingdom, in God's kingdom, and so we can have unity. Paul isn't calling them to perfect agreement on everything between them, but rather he's urging them to embrace a common vision, a common orientation around the gospel, the common reality that they are living in this one kingdom and are citizens, and so do it together. See that you're in this kingdom together. This, this unity is foundational. Is it the first thing that you think about when you think about unity that we have? That we're in the same kingdom. <laughs> so agree in the Lord. And certainly these principles for standing firm are true in all of our Christian relationships, in our families, in our marriages, in our church, and among all true family members, followers of Christ throughout the nations. And sometimes, as is seen in verse 3, sometimes we need a, a true companion, a, a fellow traveler, a fellow citizen, male or female, to come alongside of us and to help us. Sometimes we're so stuck in our muck that we can't see properly. And so we want to agree in the Lord but we don't know how to agree in the Lord. And so having a brother or sister, a fellow citizen come in and help, um, help us is, is of primary importance. And, that's, that's where, and it, can be, it could be like official counseling, but it could also just be in the pew, in the seat, on a text, a phone call, just living life together in community group, sharing life with one another in certain ways to care for each other. Do you have all the answers? No. Do I have all the answers? No. Can you fix everyone's problems? No. Can I fix everyone's problems? No. But can we say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is certainly the power of God, not just for salvation, but and the power of the Spirit working the power of the gospel in our lives to change us and conform us to the image of Jesus, so that we would agree in the Lord, so the brother and sister would agree in the Lord. Yes, that's, that's true. If you want a stable church, if you want to be a stable Christian, you must cultivate harmony among ourselves. And we cultivate harmony among ourselves by being a people who truly have a heart that always rejoices. Paul says, this is a second point, continuing in a spirit of joy will build stability in a Christian life. Paul says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I mean, how familiar are those words? If you've read Philippians at all, you know that, well, I've heard that before a few times now in Philippians, but it's like throughout God's Word about rejoicing in the Lord. And he adds the word always here, and he repeats the command. So how is it that rejoicing in the Lord will help us stand firm in the Christian life? How will it help us actually have harmonious relationships in the church? Well, most often, we find that our joy and happiness ebbs and flows based on our circumstances, Right? I mean, it just does. When things are going well, health is good, relationships are good, money's available, work's good, your sports team's winning, all those things are going well. You know, we're calm at worst, and we are rejoicing at best. We're, we're happy and content. But when things aren't going well, that's, that's another story. More times than not, we say things like, okay, look, you're telling me that I'm to rejoice in the Lord when all I can think of is how I just lost my job last week. How? How am I to rejoice in that? 
You're telling me that I'm to rejoice in the Lord even though I just got the worst news a person can get from the doctor? And you're telling me now to rejoice? You're telling me my daughter's in the hospital and all is well and I'm to rejoice. I don't know how to pay for this bill. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do. But I'm called to rejoice? I think about the guilt of my sin, maybe, and all I can feel is this condemnation and the wrong I've done and the struggles I experience and the loneliness and discouragement and depression and anxiety and fear, and you're telling me I need to rejoice? I mean, I know I need to do, but now I feel guilty for not rejoicing. My kids don't respect me, much less talk to me or heed what I have to say or the car won't start or the money isn't in the bank and the bills can't be paid. What do you mean rejoice in the Lord? And I understand that reaction because, I mean, it's like I react that way too at times. It's just the natural human fallen fleshly reaction that we also often have to both, to both things that are light afflictions and then things that are very, very heavy and weighty afflictions. Let's consider together for a moment, though, who is speaking here. This isn't a, um, this isn't a televangelist who is just like living on like whatever kind of cloud on the TV. This is the Apostle Paul who is saying, rejoice in the Lord again, I say rejoice. Paul the guy that says in 2 Corinthians 11, I've had far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And even as Paul was writing this, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice, where was he writing from? Where was he writing from? Prison. He was writing from prison. And there was not a nice prison. There was no cable TV, no, no, no food, no, no comfortable beds. He, he, more than anyone, was not just saying, look, let's just all be happy. Can you just be happy? That's not what he's talking about. The man who wrote these words knew more about suffering and deprivation than all of us in this room combined. And he says, look, I'm telling you, if you want to be a stable Christian, part of it comes from learning how to rejoice always. It's not a command uh, to somehow force a feeling or emotion, but it is a command to rejoice. I mean, so it's a, it's a command, rejoice, exclamation mark. But it's not just to, like, like how, how, do you, how do you make somebody rejoice? Something's got to change inside for us to really rejoice. Uh, specifically, this is a command to find a rejoicing in something that is immovable and unshakable. Specifically, it's a command to rejoice in a location, and that location is actually in a person, and that person, according to our text, which we've seen numerous times throughout the text, is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. We are to rejoice 
in Him. We are to agree in the Lord. It's not just rejoice. It's not just be happy. It's not just see everything from a positive angle. It's not just, hey, be, a, be one of those people that see a half-empty cup as actually half full. It's not to have a smile on your face all the time to show that you join the Lord satisfies and delights you. But there is nonetheless a settled and truly joy-filled rejoicing in the person of Jesus that we can experience, that we are meant to experience. Rejoicing, not just simply in your situation, but rejoicing in the Lord amid your situation. What concerns Paul here is where the ground of the reason for our joy is found. Is it, is it circumstances? I mean, for us often it is, and it's, so it's why, it's why we shake so much. And Christian life will be shaky as anyone on this planet who doesn't know the Lord. But if it is in the Lord Jesus, if, if, our, if our rejoicing, our settling is in the Lord Jesus, ever increasingly, we can rejoice in Him, settled though life is shaky, content though there's anything but contentedness in this life, it seems, uh, at peace or rejoicing amid sorrow, rejoicing amid pain, rejoicing amid truly joyous occasions, rejoicing in Jesus and all our benefits, read Psalm 103, no matter what it is we're experiencing. Why is it, brothers and sisters, why we can rejoice in the Lord? Well, we can rejoice in the Lord for a ton of reasons. That kids, like this, this book, this Bible, and not just kids, all of us, this book is t- filled, filled with reasons, filled with things that would cause us to rejoice in the Lord and be settled in the Lord. And so when we leave this on the shelf or on the floor or away, and we're just not thinking about God's Word, not processing God's Word, not, not understanding the promises, not, we're just not going to be content. We're not going to be joyful because we're going to be swayed by public opinion. We're going to be swayed by the things that we read. We're going to be swayed by the things that we're experiencing. Our emotions are going to be all over the place. But if we are a people of the Word and the Spirit, oh man, rejoicing in the Lord. That can be experienced. For instance, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. So rejoicing in something, rejoicing in the Lord. Let me just read this. Just, just three verses in the Bible, in all the Bible. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now that reality, that truth, man, that truth is meant to rejoice our hearts. He took our place. He, if everything in your world falls apart and everything in this world is taken away, and if you lose it all, you never lose this. He substituted Himself in our place. He is our Savior. He's the one who died for us. He, and that ought to be the supreme source of joy and delight in my life. I can look at whatever it is that just stinks in my life and call it what it is and hate it and wish it didn't have to go through it, but the one thing it can never ever do is take away the reality and the joy that He substituted Himself on the cross for my sins, that He bore my iniquity, and He's forgiven me of all my transgressions, and He's reconciled me to God, and He's made me His own. And if you're in Christ, it's true of you as well, untouchable by any circumstance, because it is in the Lord. 
This is where your hope is. This is where rejoicing is. Not just in good days or bad days. It doesn't go back and forth like that, although we enjoy good days. But what is it we first do when we're experiencing good days? We become very self-sufficient. We might thank God for a few moments, but we, we kind of move away from the God we say we love. We feel the brunt of pain. We feel sorrows and the hurts and the losses. But for those of us who are in Christ who increasingly grasp this gospel of hope, our circumstances don't take away our joy because our joy is not in a circumstance. Our joy is in a person who is the rock and the refuge and the fortress that is immovable and unshakable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is your Lord yesterday, today, and forever. He will bring you home with great joy to His presence on that final day. He will complete that which He began. This, this is where our hope rests, so this is where our joy comes from. It must come from that. Think about Romans 8.32 for a moment. Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son for us, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Now, whatever your struggle is, whatever that thing is that seems to shake you and you feel is going to keep you from being stable, whatever it is you're going through, if He already died for you on the cross, if He's already not spared His own Son but handed Him over so you can be assured that He is going to save you and, and, and make you His own, you can be assured also that the lesser is true. And that lesser is that He's going to give you what you need for the moment that you're experiencing and the difficult providence that you're experiencing that you might not lose your joy in Him. Surely that's what causes us to be stable, to stand firm. Certainly not simply just more information in our heads. It is, it is, a, um, it is not without information, but that, it's that information that the Holy Spirit uses to kind of like move that information down into our hearts where, where all of a sudden the gospel of grace becomes life to us. And we truly do sing Oh, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. To truly and continually live in a spirit of joy and delight and calm and content and rest in the Lord no matter the difficulty we're experiencing, that truly is how we're called to live. This truly is possible for us. It's not just, it's not just like... Um, you know, pie-in-the-sky Christianity, it, it is Christianity, rejoicing in the Lord. Does, does this truth of the gospel, does this truth of Christ, does this truth of God's gift to you in Jesus cause you to rejoice? Does it cause you to be at rest? A heart, a heart that rejoices in the gospel of Jesus, a heart that rejoices in the person of Jesus and in the love of Jesus is a heart that will enjoy and strengthen the harmony that's in a local church in a marriage, in a young family, in the workplace, and in this world. And perhaps you feel too weary, too overwhelmed to have a heart of rejoicing. You just can't imagine what it's like to, to actually rejoice in something right now. Well, dear friend, uh, remember that this rejoicing, rejoicing isn't about you just kind of working up your emotions to try to be happy about something. It is, though, looking specifically to the Lord Jesus. truths of the gospel 
to the promises of God that all find their yes and amen in Jesus. Your circumstances will be fluid, coming and going and all that, but Jesus is always the same. Jesus is always that rock that we can stand on, and so we must stand on Him. We must look to Him. We must rest on Him, know His promises, believing that the Lord isn't standing far off. We have to somehow look through binoculars, but, but He's actually near and He's present to all of us. So cultivating and the harmony in the church and in our own hearts for that matter stems from rejoicing in the Lord always. And rejoicing in the Lord always ultimately comes down to knowing God, who He is, and that fact is He's with us. So you see these points are moving together here into this section here where I'm going to say the way to, the way to grow, to be stable in your life, considering the Lord's nearness, will build stability in the Christian life. Cultivating harmony, continuing in rejoicing and growing and rejoicing, and then considering the Lord's nearness will build stability in the Christian life. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And just, just by the way, the, the Lord is at hand is a sentence that's all by itself in the original, and so it can, it can go backwards and it can go forwards. It's like what, what Cale is going to preach on next week, Lord willing, is, is the fact that because the Lord's at hand, this, this, is, this can be true. I'm saying, yep, and it's also true this way. The reason you can be reasonable, the reason that you can be, as the New American Standard says, be gentle, is because the Lord is near. The reason you can have harmony in your relationships is because the Lord is near. The reason you can rejoice in hope in the Lord is because the Lord is near. Unfortunately, this, this gentleness, this, this, uh, well, uh, just, just the, the original word for this, we have reasonableness, which makes, which makes total sense. It fits, fits in that sphere. But there's, there's a, a couple more words I want to speak about. Yielding is within that framework. Gentle. Uh, kind, courteous, tolerant. You might see the connection now with Yodia and Syntyche a little bit. I look at friends. Let your gentleness be known to everybody. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, and let your gentleness be known to everybody. Unfortunately, this is not what the world sees most often in Christians. Uh, be it in church splits throughout the years, or Christians gossiping, or slandering, or being two-faced, or just, or just being mean-spirited in some way, both, both in the church and outside the church. Uh, sometimes there simply is persecution in the world and lies about Christians who truly are gentle, truly are yielding and kind in every way, but they're, mis, they're misrepresented. Um, in America, though, it's become very clear, hasn't it, that the Christians just generally aren't known for their reasonableness or their gentleness, uh, yielding or courteous and kind. And certainly Christians are all um, uh, kind of wrongly placed into one category. So like Christian equals this, and it's like, well, look, I, like, they don't speak for… Like, uh, don't lump us all into one category here. But the reality is, is that, hey, there's a reality that… Your neighbor might think, if you're a Christian, that you're a certain kind of whatever. Uh, 
According to the logic of just this small portion of Scripture we're in today, the, the reason for this, it seems that Christians seem to be living with a sense that the Lord is not near. If they're living in a non-gentle, non-yielding, uh, non-kind way, or, or lack of reasonableness, um, that there, there is a potential, at least, that Christians might not be living with a sense of God's nearness. Uh, there is little to rejoice about for them because they're so up in arms about whatever amid their difficulties, and one of the results is a lack of relational harmony inside the church and much more with those outside the church. Uh, real joy in the gospel, real joy in Jesus, real joy in being citizens of a better country that no one can touch. That's what we want, having real joy in the gospel, real joy, not being, not being changed by every wind that comes and every attack that comes or every thought that comes, but to actually be gentle, actually to grow in this sense of contentment and rejoicing and harmony because of the cross of Christ and because of the power of the Spirit. I believe this gentleness comes when someone is truly content in the Lord. So the question is, how content in the Lord are we? A Christian's hope is to be in the Lord. Their identity is in Him. Their vindication is in Him. They're accepted in the Beloved. They're in Christ. They have the righteousness of Christ. They don't have to fight for what they feel is right or strive hard to see to be seen as right. They can speak, um, but they can do so with gentleness. They can exhort and admonish, but do so without anger because they're content in the forgiveness they've received and know that they're also in process because they, they can trust the same Spirit that's a work in them to be a work in the other person. In Christ, their heart and soul rejoices, and as nothing can touch the love they've received in Christ, they walk in a gentle spirit as they enjoy the gentle, loving, powerful presence of the Lord. Even amid a disagreement or appeal, you have a sweet reasonableness about you that comes across as, wow, that person's, that person's really gentle. Not just, not just reasonable to talk to, but they're actually gentle. It's so kind. This church is filled with people like this. It looks like having a big heart and a very generous in grace and kindness and patience and goodwill towards others, even bending beyond what would be expected of you to serve in some uh, way. It looks like having charity towards the faults of others, certainly not downplaying sins, but you're gracious toward their faults. You're gracious towards their sins, knowing that you too have been dealt grace so bountifully And so you're able to be gentle with people's failures, patient with them, just like you've been acted upon patiently by the Lord, and weaknesses, just as God is with you. It's a sense of gracious humility toward others in the church, in our homes, in our marriage, in our workplace, and in the culture that we're being called to here. And how is it that we can stand firm and, and exhibit such a gracious spirit like that? Paul tells us it's because the Lord is near because the Lord is near. I don't believe Paul was thinking about the return of Christ specifically in this portion, although certainly last week he was speaking about that. I believe he has simply in mind the fact that the Lord is near to us right now. He's near to us in our 
disharmony. He's near to us in our lack of rejoicing. He's near to us in our difficulty with gentleness. He's near to us. He is with us. He's an ever-present help. The reason you can be gentle and gracious and overflowing with all this kind of kindness and mercy and sweetness about you is because you know who's right here with you. You know Him and you know He's here. And not, not, not one or the other, because you might know He's here, but you don't know Him, so you're not sure exactly what that means. But to know, and, and, and you, might, you might also believe that God is X, Y, Z, but He's kind of way out there and not close, and He's not interested in me, and, and that's not helpful. It's both things together, knowing this Lord and knowing that He is near us. And if all this lands on you without a sense of great wonder that the Lord is near, it doesn't land on you with a heart of thanksgiving about this and utter joy, then, then there's just simply a problem. There's a problem in us, you know? And the problem isn't that our problems are too big for us to be gentle and gracious. It's, it's that the Lord who is, in fact, enormous and near is just simply too small in our eyes. It's as though we've turned the binoculars around and it's just this little thing way off in the distance that can hardly affect anything. But if you know the Lord who's near to you is eternal and sovereign, good and gracious, your Father, your friend, the one who loves you infinitely, the one who will guard you and keep you and strengthen you and give you hope and is faithful to His promises and sympathizes with your weaknesses and has promised to be with you wherever you go, promised to present you blameless with great joy on that final day and promised to prepare a home for you so much more than you will find yourself having this significant gentleness about you and people will look at you amid your difficulties and say, what in the world is all this about? How is it when your world is caving in? How is it when instability and everything about you really should shake you and cause you to become collapsed and caved in? Why is it that you have this gentle, contented joy about you? It does not make sense. And you'll say this, should say this, because I know the Lord and I know He's near me. I am His and he is mine forevermore. Friends, Yodia and Syntyche are encouraged to not simply agree in the Lord, but to rejoice in the Lord and let their gentleness be known by all, for the Lord is near. It all goes hand in hand. Harmony in the church comes about and grows through truly knowing the glorious one who cements us together as God's family, forgiven, delivered, set free, given an eternal hope, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise of His presence and His power and ability to complete that which He began in each of us to the praise of His glorious grace. You will know that you truly know the glorious one who is ever-present as the rejoicing in your heart grows, as thankfulness is on your lips, as gentleness is seen in your eyes and felt in your heart towards others and observed by all, as Paul says. So some application questions, and then we'll close. I'll put these in the sermon follow-up this afternoon. But are, those, are there those in the church, including your own household, whom you often find yourself in disagreement with. Why, why, why is that? And what is this text pointing to as the primary problem? What, what might it mean for you to agree in the Lord with them? Again, look, look for this, all, all this content on sermon follow-up this afternoon. So second application question. How might you grow this week in your grasp of gospel truth so as to, you know, add kindling to the flickering fire of your affections, your joy, 
and your gentle spirit. How might you grow this week in your grasp of gospel truth so as to add kindling to the flickering fire of your affections, joy and gentle spirit? Perhaps, perhaps for you it might be listening to some music that reminds you of the truths of the gospel or the power of God or His nearness. Perhaps it's meditating on scriptures like Psalm 23 or Psalm 103 or Isaiah 53 or any other texts. Perhaps it's being sure to attend community group this week and find gospel grace as you meet with one another and pray for one another. But how might you grow to grasp this gospel truth? Three, don't grow weary in prayer. Continue to plead with God for strength and understanding and clearer vision of Him. Don't, don't grow tired of asking. Ask and ask and ask and ask. Knock and knock and knock to, for faith to believe what He's promised, to know who He is, that He is always faithful, never changing, and in Him alone you will find relief and rest, contentment and gentleness, hope and a heart that rejoices. For some of you, you're in a very good place. Your heart is filled with wonder and awe of your Savior. You love Him, and you know you're loved by Him. You know the battle of doubt, you know the battle of sin, but generally you walk this life with a heart of contentment and joy, gentleness, and hope. Now perhaps you might consider that the Lord is calling you to be like this fellow that Paul speaks of. Help you, Odia and Syntyche. Being mindful, you you might be Yodia tomorrow, and you're going to need help from someone else. We're in this together, friends. If you're doing well, come alongside of other people and encourage and strengthen. Not by way of just simply telling them what to do, but to give them a vision of the Jesus that you see, you're finding hope in, you believe in with all your heart, and pray, intercede for them, because unless the Holy Spirit opens eyes, won't happen. Our church will grow increasingly stable and harmonious as we grow to know and believe that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. That, that's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to grow to be stable. And of course, the same is true for our marriages. The same is true for our families. The same is true for our individual lives. Stability in the Christian life does not come through strict adherence to rules and regulations, but comes when one stands on the solid rock of our gracious, merciful, powerful King Jesus, the only one who is immovable, the only one who is unshakable, and whose kingdom is forever. And we have the joy of being in that kingdom together, and so let's grow together to stand firm in the Lord. Lord, would you uh, do this work in us? Thank you for the joy we have in you. Lord, we, we, want, uh, now we, want to, we want to just ask you for more of that, more sense of gospel joy, richness, and not just, and not just, um, just kind of make it a religious thing. But we want to truly feel joy, truly feel that you are near us. For, for when we do, 
Oh, when we do feel your nearness, when we do feel your power in us, when we do feel your vo- hear your voice speak to us through your word, when, when the word comes alive, when a song is ministering to us, when we are feeling close, and when tears come to our eyes and lumps in our throat, and when laughter comes to our lips, when we look at the heavens and we see your glory, when we look to uh, the animals, the fish of the sea, and, the, and things around us, and we, we, we see that the fact that you made all these things, and you sustain all these things, and our hearts are filled with wonder. Lord, when when those things are at work in us, when you are at work in us, when we feel your nearness, our lives, man, our lives are sweet, even though, even though we might be going through difficulty. Lord, help us to grow in this area specifically, to be people who truly are um, gentle and rejoicing and in harmony in you with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.